I'm Yvette. And I'm Cynthia, and this is the first in a Chiquita Sod series. We're two Latinas from working class immigrant families navigating law school and bringing y'all raw, critical analysis of the law, current events, and personal politics. Why? Because we want to break down barriers set up by elite institutions and democratize knowledge. On this Chiquita Sod, we interview Professor Stephen Bender and Professor Frank Valdez as a part of the teaching series of Harvard Law's La Alianza's conference, which you'll learn about more in a minute from the student organizers. During this conversation, we talk about the 14th Amendment and its limited scope, as well as the role that lawyers have and shouldn't have in social movements. We are going also going to release two more Chiquita episodes in the next week, where we interview professors Margaret Montoya and Christine Zuni-Cruz. Yvette, how have you been? I know we haven't released anything in a hot minute. <laughs> yeah, um, I feel good. Winter break was a little stressful because I had to move, um, but I'm in a calmer place now, so that's nice. That's good to hear. I like felt so bad for you when I found out you were moving, because that is a stressful thing, and to find on-campus yeah. housing isn't the easiest, so. Yeah. But I'm glad it worked out, and it could have been a lot worse, so. Yeah, and you're not, your apartment now is super nice. I really like it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's why I can't complain. Yeah. How are you? Uh, doing well. Uh, I feel like I'm keeping on top of my classes, which is nice. And sometimes that's all I want out of my day. And yeah, so exactly. It feels good. It feels, ba- it feels good to be back in school. But also, I'm going home next weekend, which is totally needed already. <laughs> oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I hope everybody enjoys these interviews and we'll hear from folks so you can get a better sense of what this whole thing is in a minute. But yeah, we'll be back very shortly with another episode to make up for lost time. Hi, y'all. We are here today with the student organizers of this year's Latinx Law Conference, which is presented by La Alianza and the Native American Law Student Association at Harvard. Uh, This year's conference has a specific theme. It's titled Advocating Across Communities, Shared Identities, Struggles, and Imagination. But before we get into more about why this particular theme was picked for this year, we wanted to ask Michael, one of the student organizers, a little bit about the history and context of how this conference came about in the first place. Great, thank you. Yeah, uh, so I'm Michael. I'm a 3L here at Harvard and um, have been on the planning committee for the conference the past two years. Um, This is our third annual uh, Latinx Law Conference at Harvard. And uh, we're really excited about it this year, in part because it builds on the work we've done the past two years. Mm. Um, the conference really began out of an interest among La Alianza members to create a space on campus to talk about um, some of the issues that were affecting our communities and to explore um, Latinx identity uh, more broadly. Um, over the years, we've really benefited from uh, Professor Margaret Montoya's mentorship and have, I would say, increasingly seen the conference as an opportunity to disrupt what we see as a toxic uh, institutional culture at HLS and to um, create a space for not only an exploration of Latinx identity, but of identity and advocacy more generally. And so part of that 
conference planning process itself. And every year it's been a very collective process and, and mm-hmm. we've drawn ideas and speakers and elements of the conference from the Lawlands of membership uh, at large and particular members of the conference committee as well. So it's been, uh, I think, a very unique experience each year we've done it because the Lawlands of membership has changed year to year and people bring different parts of themselves to the conference planning process. Um, so it's been a really exciting to be a part of. This year we're super excited to be partnering with NALSA. So first year we'll be doing that. And uh, we really wanted to do that to, to explore, again, sort of a broader diversity of Latinx experiences um, and to make it a more intersectional and inclusive event. That's really great. I think you all are bringing really important perspectives to this conversation about law school and also um, what movement lawyering and um, client-centered lawyering and lawyering for communities really looks like. Chelsea, did you want to add anything? I think I would add, um, uh, just introduce myself, I'm Chelsea, I'm a 3L here at Harvard, Um, and like Michael, I've also been on the conference planning committee for the past two years, and he highlighted a theme of continuity, um, which is something that Professor Montoya has kind of instituted uh, and pressed upon us, and we've tried to be really purposeful in that and going forward, um, in that we try to, in the same way that new members bring new perspectives and new ideas, things that we hadn't even really thought of before. We also try to build upon um, the progress that we've made in the year years prior. So every year at the end, once our conference is finished, we sit down, we think, how can we make this more dynamic? How can we make this more of a dialogue? So that part has been a really great experience to be a part of. Did anybody want to add anything else? Yeah, so uh, my name is Ryan McCartney. I'm a third-year law student here at Harvard, and I am one of the members of NALSA who is involved in the conference planning. I'm also a member of Alianza, so this has been really exciting for me because this conference touches on the intersection of my personal identity. So it's been really cool to see that adopted and looking at the complex legal and cultural identities that um, are really coming to light in this conference. So I just wanted to speak briefly about NALSA's experience and how we kind of came into the conference this year. As you might imagine, the Harvard Native American Law Students Association is a traditionally pretty small group. The numbers Mm -hmm. fluctuate from year to year. But um, to give you an idea, when I came in my 1L year, um, I was one of two Native 1Ls. Wow. And yeah, we only had uh, two Native 2Ls and we had one three all at the time, I believe, or two, two three all at the time. Um, so it was a very small group if you're talking about JD students. Right. Um, we're very fortunate this year that we have a lot more one L's and two L's, which I'm very excited about. But um, the fact that we are such a small group means that historically our voice has not always been a prominent one on campus. Mm. We have historically had problems with Um, other student organizations meaning really well and wanting to do some kind of an event that touches on Native issues, for example, violence against Native women, and bringing in speakers and setting up their whole event without ever reaching out to NALSA. Wow. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so it it can be difficult, but I think the last few years in particular, NALSA has really been trying to make themselves a more prominent voice on campus. We've been trying to build coalitions with our other student organizations and participate in student organization um, bodies that exist on campus. 
And Lowlands is obviously a natural sort of resource for us, and it's a natural a natural partnership in many ways because our communities are so closely connected and we have several members who are involved in both groups. And so I think that that, together with the fact that in the last few years, the political climate has really pushed to the surface a lot of these issues that we share between our two communities, it made sense for us coming into this year to look at um, what was going on on campus, what were the big events, what could we do to try and bring a native voice onto a large scale, and the Lolly Officer Conference is a great way to do that. That's great. Um, I'm so glad to hear about the partnership. I'm, I'm so sorry. I was cringing for you when I was thinking about other student groups organizing things without you. And yeah. I'm, we're, we're glad that you're making your voices more heard and larger on campus. We understand like how so many voices can be shut down in the law schools. So we just also wanted to ask now, thanks for all the background on the conference, but what's the theme for this year? And you know, if you want to speak about why the theme, that'd be great. I think, Ryan, you kind of already started touching on that a little bit, but if you just want to explain a little bit more about you or Michael or Chelsea, want to explain a little bit more about um, what this theme means for you all and why you chose it. This is Felipe Hernandez. I'm a one-house from uh, Los Angeles, California. And the theme this year for the conference came to fruition when uh, I was speaking with some of the past organizers of the conference from last year. They had talked about how they wanted to to have a conversation about our, our native identity uh, within the Latinx community. And so at the same time, we were experiencing sort of seismic shifts in the community with the changes in the sociopolitical landscape. And so the natural turning point was to have these conversations about our identity, um, sort of our shared struggles, and our imaginations for liberation, sort of freedom dreaming, was a critical aspect of, of sort of the conference theme. And, and so at first we, we came together so that we can examine what, what background we have uh, that's in common with respect to our identities and the intersection of all those identities. Um, and then from there we started to think about the, the same struggles that we have always encountered that have been the same struggles despite us living in this time period, that these are historical and rooted in a very long arc of injustice. And, and, and then trying to think about how we can bend that arc towards justice. And that was the imagination piece. That's great. Thanks for sharing that, Felipe. And then just to kind of wrap things up, uh, do you want to speak briefly about how our podcast fits into the goals of the conference as well? Yeah, most definitely. So this is a conversation that we wanted to share across the, folks across the country. Um, and this is, we, we started to think about the privilege that it takes to be on these campuses. Right. And, the, the ability that is required to just be present there physically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so your podcast was also a great training point where we could go to, to you, even though you're across the country at Stanford, and sort of expand this conversation so that as folks are uh, engaging in their, in their regular activity on a day-to-day basis, they can listen to these conversations being had, and they can also begin the process of examining or continue the process of examining their identities um, and their community and the, the plight of their ancestors and how it's all intersected and related and so that they can start to conceptualize how they can, on a day-to-day basis, through small actions, begin to, to bend that arc towards justice and uh, liberation. Well, I'm so glad you came and spoke to me and brought us the idea because we love doing this. I like Those goals that you just outlined are exactly why Yvette and I wanted to do this podcast in the first place and you know, really just take the conversations out of the ivory tower and engage with everybody. So we're, yeah, 
we're just so happy to partner with y'all. And now here's our conversation with Professors Bender and Valdez. We're here today with Professors Stephen Bender and Frank Valdez. They're here to talk to us about a new textbook that they've been working on, um, as well as um, issues in the law, inequities within the law, and whether or not it's a useful tool for social justice movements. But before we get more into the nitty gritty of all that, Professor Bender, maybe you want to go first. Could you give us a quick introduction, um, what, what you're currently doing, and if you want to go into the textbook, we can talk about that as well. Sure. Thank you so much for doing this. So quickly, I've been teaching for 26 years. I'm at Seattle University, um, and I teach a wide variety of curriculum from social justice to uh, business law, and I write extensively on Latino issues. Um, and my latest book is called How the West Was Won, Reimagining the U.S.-Mexico Border. Um, and I'm excited to talk to you about social justice today. Great. Thank you. Professor Valdez, could you also give us a quick introduction? Well, yes, but first you should know that Steve's latest book, How the West Was Won, is Juan, J-U-A-N, in case you go looking for it. <laughs> so anyway, I've been teaching since 1991. I focus on constitutional law. My writing deals with mainly areas of race, ethnicity, and sexuality, vis-a-vis equality, liberty, and dignity. And um, I teach at the University of Miami. Great. And we. And I'll, I'll add that both of us, and particularly Frank, have been integral in the in the maintenance of the community-based project. Um, um, LATCRIT, uh, Latina and Latino Critical Legal Theory, that has held a number of, of conferences and writing symposiums and critical praxis interventions um, throughout the last couple of decades. Could you tell us a bit more about LATCRIT and how that scholarly movement got started? Well, sure. Critical race theory, as you know, sprang up in the late 1980s to question the erasure of color generally from legal analysis scholarship, and policymaking. And LACRIT theory, LACRIT community, LACRIT praxis is an offshoot or a cousin of the critical race theory, let's say, movement or initiative. And so our focus being on Latina and Latino populations from the very beginning had to be multidimensional, intersectional, in the sense that Latinas and Latinos come in all colors, in all religions, in all genders, in all sexes. And so there are black and Asian and white and brown Latinas and Latinos. Mm -hmm. And so that one population allowed us to explore the insights of critical race theory in more expansive and more complex ways and also in ways that reflect the international diaspora that the category refers to in fact. So that's just a few words to, to sort of situate it. Steve, you might want to add a few more. I'll add a couple more eyes, and that is uh, in addition to intersectional and international, um, and that's uh, interdisciplinary. The community um, and the sort of big tent of LATCRIT um, activists and scholars is not by any means limited to legal scholars, and we, and we embrace and welcome a variety of interdisciplinary 
um, scholars to learn from each other. So uh, that's at least one more high. Great. Well, thank you for that. So I think we'd like to kick off the interview and asking you questions with what I think is one of the big questions for anybody in law school or already uh, through law school or thinking about law school and just thinking about the law as a tool. So we've talked about a lot on this podcast about how the law kind of formalizes inequality and discrimination and where in opinions we find it and, and how we see that play out. So if the law itself is, is a part of the denial of equal justice, you know, should we continue pursuing these legal remedies to confront systemic injustice? Or, you know, is that is there some other direction we should be looking towards in order to fix these issues that the law itself like, kind of reinforces? Do you want to talk about the predicament, Frank? Sure, but I'll begin with the answer, which in very short one-word terms is both, not either or. So, no. We cannot continue to pursue uh, social justice through lawyering only in the ways that we have in the past unless we expect to recycle and repeat both the successes but also the reversals and limitations of the past. So lawyering as we have known it is important and cannot be abandoned, but it also cannot be continued simply as is if we really want to make a difference, and that's the predicament that Steve just referenced. The predicament of progress that the advocate faces is that traditional lawyering, which is aimed at persuading elite decision makers to do the right thing, just isn't enough to ground progress. That is, to make a real difference that is sustained and sustainable over time in the lives of people who are the targets or the uh, the carriers of the burdens of inequality, of group inequality. And so the multidimensional, as some scholars have called it, approach to advocacy, to lawyering, that emerges from the experiences of civil rights, suffragettes, gays, transgender folks, is an emergent one an emergent one that needs to be, first of all, recognized and then appreciated and then uh, training provided in and then finally becoming a widespread practice that over time can actually make a difference. So you just... That's out- a lot of words. Yeah, thanks for that. It's really comprehensive. Um, so you just outlined that a traditional model of lawyering involves simply persuading elite decision makers to do the right thing, um, but that a multidimensional approach is one that could actually be transformative. Could you speak a little bit more about yeah. what alternative modes of lawyering you've seen or studied that you think do constitute that multidimensional approach? Yes. All right. So just very briefly, we can take the definition and the example given by Doug Najame regarding the marriage equality cases in which he points out that advocates engaged in what we might call traditional lawyering while at the same time engaging in what he called legal mobilization. And what that translates into, in fact, is simply this, expanding the scope of your advocacy to target different audiences, different actors, different interests, 
different kinds and sources of power, not just appealing to elite decision makers to do the right thing based on principle, but expanding that scope to include groups, interests, identities, power based on those things in conjunction with persuasion aimed at elite decision makers. And then to just cap it off with two simple bottom lines is that you end up having to do two things. You end up having to organize campaigns, or more specifically for a lawyer, work with organizers of campaigns in a symbiotic, collaborative relationship. And secondly, continue to do the work of the lawyer in a technical sense as trained in law school. I'll add that Frank, in, in, in the present moment, and, and probably today, is teaching about 60 first-year law students at the University of Miami um, these principles. Um, and for law students um, who listen to the podcast, they can ask themselves um, how um, what Frank described differs from their typical legal training um, in law school, um, civil procedure, and other courses, that, uh, and, and as well, legal writing which is very, very focused on um, lawyers um, and top-down um, lawyer assignments rather than focused on clients and communities and sourcing power and just discerning interests. That's great, and that, that's actually something we've touched on a few episodes now, that uh, it's really important for lawyers not to see themselves as leading social movements, but as working with other or as with uh, working with organizers and figuring out the best role that they can play within social movements. Uh, so I, you know, wanted to ask, what would be one concrete tip that you would give a law student that's trying to figure out ways to not center themselves and other elite decision makers and make it so that they are working collaboratively in a symbiotic relationship with the community? I'll give a quick one. That's the importance of, of narrative and the client's story. And if, if you understand that importance, then you have to listen and be humble in, in that listening. Um, so humility and narrative and listening are all related skills. Great. Yeah, and what I would say is go actually join a local group. Just go join a local group. Go learn some collaboration, some humility. Go out of the law school campus where you are made to feel that you are at the center of the universe and go into the world to experience how large that universe actually really is and how marginal you really are to it in relationship to other people's lives. As an advocate, you choose to become responsible for progress. And in taking that responsibility, you then have to take it seriously and focus on the social impact on the life, on the client, on the problem, on the actual solution to that problem as lived by that client, and not whatever some checklist or some list of elements on some, you know, law school or case or opinion published in some book I'd have to say. All of that's important. The words on the paper are important. It just can't become the substitute for the reality. In other words, the legal fictions have got to be set aside so that then social impacts can be imagined, strategized, and executed. Well, 
kind of going off that. Do you have an example oh. of a, a quick example of a legal fiction for those who aren't uh, lawyers or law students? Well, I mean, yes, I'll give you two examples in one. First was The Reasonable Man, right, which was supposed to be this representation of humanity that was called a reasonable man that then would determine what you and I should do in our daily lives. And if we don't do what the reasonable man hypothetically would have done, then we're liable for whatever it is that somebody is claiming against us. But then, even after that legal fiction was exploded by critical feminist and standards, mm-hmm. and then the talk became the reasonable person, when you continue to examine how the category, how the fiction operates, despite the formal name change from man to person, you see that it's still a gendered notion, a gendered fiction that imposes a false reality by law, by force of law. So that's what a legal fiction is. The substitution of reality with a legal concept that's not reality. I, I love that. Fictions are rarely identif- identified in the law school classroom as well as such. Yeah, I wanted just to say that I, I love that legal fiction and that example of a reasonable person because the reasonable person definitely is the standard and the way to measure things over and over that we see. I just got out of my 1L year, so it's still very fresh for me how often the reasonable person is spoken about. And I often felt very just confused and upset, and I couldn't name it, like what it was that I was just reacting against. And it's that legal fiction, right, where it's just the reality I'm not, like that I know, that I experienced growing up, but was not being reflected in, in the law and how we analyze anything. Something. Exactly. Something but up. over those thousand days in law school, you're slowly being retrained to rethink. And that's how the fiction becomes the reality over the generations. One of the things that I've been struggling with lately is trying to understand what the practice of law might look like and not, and not include legal fiction. Like, um, I do immigration law, and when you're working on an asylum case, the exercise is trying to fit someone's really complicated, messy life into a really neat box, like persecution on the account of race or persecution on the account of political opinion, um, when it's really hard to discern the intent behind a persecutor and also all the reasons why a person's afraid to return to their home country. Um, So how do you all grapple with that, um, with questions of what the law, what practicing law looks like and um, avoiding legal fiction. I'll, I'll add that we struggle all the time with the indeterminacy of law and because of that uns- uncertainty, the ability of, of legal decision makers to do just about anything they want and to, um, and to disguise and hide in the case of immigration and refugee and asylum status, as you mentioned, to, to hide political um, motivations and political interest in deciding somebody fits in a box and another person who's in an exact same situation doesn't. Um, So legal actors do that all the time and they get away with it. Um, And um, that's, that's part of what we struggle with in the classroom and in, and in real lived lives. I think we have to um, make a distinction between categories and fictions. And I think we have to recognize that there have to be categories 
but maybe there don't have to be quite so many fictions. Hmm. And that categories are inherently complex. The law of the practice of law is complex. Humans are complex. Humans live their lives in complex ways. Right. But fictions are lies on top of that. Fictions are things that by definition are not true, which means they're lies. And so fictions introduce artificial complexities that make it more difficult to resolve organic complexities in a principled way. That's the problem. So the problem is not law. The problem is not humans and their complexities, which law has to deal with. The problem is not that lawyers who are humans have to deal with the complexities of other humans under the laws that humans have made, which are also complex. The problem is when they infuse all that with ideology, with supremacy, in the name of equal justice and equal justice problem solving. So it's in the hypocrisy, it's in the contradiction that the problem lies. So, so to give you an example of that, the, the, that involves Puerto Rico, you have, you have legal actors who, and particularly the courts, who created the judicial fiction of an unincorporated territory and Puerto Rico is an unincorporated territory unsuitable for statehood, and then later Congress saying, no, actually, you're a commonwealth, which sounds um, different but really is the same thing, that, that effectively deprives you of equality on identity grounds because it takes away voting representation uh, for president and meaningful congressional representation. So, so virtually every, um, every group on identity grounds has a variety of of impacts of judicial fictions, um, and that's just one of them that resonates within the Latino community, especially now, um, given the crisis in Puerto Rico. So I want to kind of, going up based off what you're speaking about, I want to talk about the 14th Amendment, because I know we're, you know, we're like at the 150th anniversary of it, and Yvette and I have really gone over a lot of cases that's based in the 14th Amendment and shown how you know, the court has analyzed the 14th Amendment and how it's used it in a way that has really not provided equal justice for these different identity groups and at times how it's been, you know, really used as a weapon, weaponized against communities of colors. And I'm thinking about affirmative action in this, in, in that case. So, you know, what do you make of the 14th Amendment and what its promise was, what its intent was, and where it is now? And it's, its role in providing equal justice for all. Well, you've already said the judges specifically of the Supreme Court, starting in the slaughterhouse opinion, have been on a slash and burn campaign to undo the 14th Amendment. Enacted in 1868, as you say, 150 years ago, that campaign begins in 1872. In the few years between 1868 and 1872, when Slaughterhouse is decided, the circuit courts, the circuit judges, the federal judges, the district courts, issue many opinions, most of them true to the spirit, the intent, and the letter of the 14th Amendment. You can look to those cases, not the Supreme Court, to the lower court cases prior to Slaughterhouse, to see what might have been and should have been. But ever since Slaughterhouse and the judicial politics around that opinion and apart from that opinion, but around that time, the shutting down of Reconstruction, well, you have to know that history to understand why the 14th Amendment has been sabotaged. 
judges in the way that it has. Generation after generation after generation, with the brief exception of the mid to late 50s, early 60s, up to 1970s, early. And, it, and it's not just sabotaged by the, by the courts and the judges, which, which do their own share. Um, it's sabotaged by others because you take perhaps the most perhaps the most recognized and, and seemingly meaningful Supreme Court decision, Brown versus Board of Education, um, and look at the legacy after Brown and ask whether um, and why schools are as or more segregated now than they were then, um, and ask what are the factors at play there. And surely the courts were at play, but, but private actors um, and other public actors like legislatures were all um, in cooperation and conspiracy to sabotage that decision from having any meaningful impact. Could you all explain the, or give a quick synopsis of the slaughterhouse cases and how they marked a departure from the previous decisions that had been more in line with the original intent of the 14th Amendment, just for people who might not have read those cases? Sure, although just the way you phrased the question helps brings a smile to my face because it helps to bring into focus how weird that opinion is. So first of all, that opinion focuses on the privileges and immunities clause of the 14th Amendment. Generally speaking, there are three clauses to the 14th Amendment that lawyers have emphasized over the centuries. Equal protection, due process, and privileges and immunities. All three were pled in Slaughterhouse. The judges reject the claims on all three, but focus on privileges and immunities. So it's really mostly dicta. And for those who don't know, dicta is when judges are just running off at the mouth rather than actually deciding a case. So dictum is a tangent, something not necessary to the decision in the case, but something that the judges stick in there, like gossip let's say. <laughs> anyway, technically, as you know, tangents or gossip are not supposed to be binding in life, and dictum is not supposed to be binding in law. But judges can do whatever they want, and if it suits future judges to follow dictum, they do. And so, all of the running off at the mouth that the judges do in Slaughterhouse about equality about due process and about privileges and immunities results in what future cases produce. So, for instance, the state action doctrine, the idea of equality and liberty as a negative right, the notion of intention, all of these are legal fictions that judges made up to sabotage the 14th Amendment, and they have done so quite successfully. So the opinion technically is only about privileges and immunities, but its impact has been much more devastating. Now, privileges and immunities, just on that specifically. What the judges said is technically, even though there are some, they're really hard to find because the privileges and immunities protected by the 14th Amendment are not those that you and I and they and the English common law tradition in general has identified over the centuries, but rather, giving it a much more narrow definition because they wanted it that way, they said that federal 
religious and immunities are limited to those things that relate only specifically to the character, the nature, the purpose of the federal government. So, for instance, the right to go to Washington, D.C. and petition the government is a privilege and immunity of the 14th Amendment. But the right to pursue a legal occupation legally is not. In Slaughterhouse, what had happened is the state of Louisiana had given a monopoly to a particular group to conduct the slaughtering of animals for human consumption. It was regarded an exercise of the police power for sanitation, public health purposes. The butchers who had to go to that slaughterhouse to get their animals butchered complained and said, forcing me to go to that slaughterhouse to have my animals butchered is a deprivation of my right to pursue a legal occupation legally, i.e. the occupation of a butcher and going to wherever I might get the best price. The judges said not only no, but as I have already mentioned, no, because the 14th Amendment doesn't extend to those kinds of fundamental privileges and immunities, but rather only to those that in the view of the judges can be ascribed specifically to the character of the federal government. I could go on and on, but that's just to give you an idea. If I can just add something quickly um, to tie it into Puerto Rico, which was a which was a previous example we talked about, it ties into this imperialism and illegal fiction of Puerto Rico as an unincorporated territory um, and a. Uh, um, and now a commonwealth, it took Congress to actually pass a law to say that the privileges and immunities um, that Frank described and that, the, and that the courts have recognized are applicable um, to Puerto Ricans in Puerto Rico as if Puerto Rico was a state. Um, so all of this um, is um, embedded um, in legal fiction. Thank you so much for that overview. I think that's super helpful. We haven't gone over Slaughterhouse in, in our podcast at all, so that was really great. Um, just to be respectful of your time, I did want to kind of end on, on one question that I think we've kind of discussed but haven't uh, got into it explicitly. So I'm just wondering, you know, all this conversation, all the law, all the legal fictions that we talked about, all the different legal strategies, um, for lawyering, you know, how do how does the Latinx community fit into these discussions and these interventions? Like, like both as people who can make change, but also as people who are affected and are often disen disenfranchised and all of that. <laughs> well, what I would say is this: this country was founded on white supremacy, in general terms, but targeted pragmatically, initially, specifically at black people, as well as natives. And so, in this country, black and native people as a group, as a group, have been forced into a polar relationship with whites. Into that mix come later, not really, but just to make it simple, Asian and Latina, Latino populations. With Asians and Latino, Latino populations, it happens with the westward expansion 
the conquest of Texas, the conquest of the Southwest, the expansion of the railroads, the importation of what came to be called coolie laborers, and then their exclusion. And so these two additional groups brought by white people, white ruling elites, into that mix in order to perpetuate but also complicating white supremacy leads today to this answer to your question. Latinas and Latinos are in a very strategic position vis-a-vis white supremacy in the U.S. because successors in interest to that supremacy are more than happy to welcome Latinas and Latinos as fellow oppressors, let's say. Latinas and Latinos are welcome to be white if they look it and act it. That option is not open to natives or to blacks. A similar, but not quite the same option is available to some Asians. So Asians, some Asians, and many Latinos, not all, are given the opportunity to reinforce white supremacy by accepting a limited inclusion in its benefits or not, and to side with black people, native people, other people. That's the choice that Latinas and Latinos have that others don't because of the political and demographic, the political history and demographic construction, demographic politics of white supremacy in this country. And I'll give you a quick example of judicial sabotage that implicates the Latino Latino community. You have a fundamental case um, like Hernandez versus Texas, um, where the Supreme Court moves beyond the black-white paradigm and says, Latinos, Latinas can't be systemically excluded from juries by rogue, unprincipled local actors consistent with equal protection under the 14th Amendment. Um, and then later the Supreme Court in a different Hernandez case, Hernandez versus New York, that a lot of law students are exposed to, um, comes back and says, well, but if you're bilingual, then prosecutors can routinely um, exclude you from the jury because you might fail to honor an incorrect translation. Um, so you're entitled to be on the jury, you're protected, um, you have a quality of eligibility for the jury, but then you're not, and you're taken away in the same breath. Um, and some of that is inequality, but it, it's not recognized as that, by the courts at least. So let's appreciate what that means. That means that if, so now we're going to have to use our imaginations here. That's why it's a legal fiction. So what that means is that, first of all, we have to imagine a Latino in the abstract and say that person cannot be excluded consistent with the 14th Amendment from jury service. But then... Because they're a Latino, yeah. Right, because they're Latino. But then Latinos are either bilingual or they're not. So if you're bilingual, then you can be excluded. Not because you're Latino, but because you're bilingual. Notice the fictional distinction. And then if you're not bilingual, that means that you're either monolingual in Spanish, in which case they're going to strike you anyway. Unless it's New Mexico, but yes. Or you're monolingual in English, in which case you're probably the most assimilated, Americanized, whitened, invested in the status quo subset of the Latino population. And so the system very cleverly can proclaim, oh, no, Latinos, no, we're not bad. No, we used to be, but we're not bad anymore. But don't look, don't look.
then if you go past the proclamation and you see how the proclamation becomes sliced and diced in practice, you realize that you're back to where you were before the proclamation, except even worse, because at least without the formal proclamation, without formal equality, you have a complaint that is so patently unjust that it mobilizes masses. But when you bury it in that kind of artificial complexity and layers of legal fiction that take time and energy and education and training to pierce, to explain, to first understand and then to explain, well, that's how systems buy time, perpetuate injustice, and elude progress. That's the predicament with which we began. Well, I mean... With the upshot, if you're a Latino in a criminal uh, a, a criminal defendant, um, you're probably not going to have a jury of your peers. Yeah, thank you so much for that. That's something that Yvette and I definitely think about a lot and talk about a lot, just how let the Latinx community is really situated, well, some of it, to enforce and, you know, white supremacy. And, you know, we, we're self-critical about that because at our own law school here at Stanford, most of the majority of of the Latinx community here is light-skinned or white-passing. And so, you know, it really makes a difference in terms of access and things. So um, we really appreciate y'all highlighting this because it is, it's it's true and it's something that we as the community need to um, be accountable for. Exactly. And you're right, it's not all, but it's enough of us. Yes, yes. Um, well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us and... Uh, with our audience. It was so lovely to get to hear your thoughts on all of this. And yeah, I just really appreciate getting to know you. And because here at Stanford Law, sadly, we only have one Latinx professor. Um, so I hardly get to meet other uh, Latinx lawyers who have entered the academia. When I was at Stanford in the late, or actually early, now that I think about it, well, late 80s, early 90s, there was also only one Latino on the faculty. So that's just to put your experience in a bit of a historical perspective. Which is one more than some many schools still. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Um, Thank you so much, Cynthia and Yvette, for for this, this conversation. If we can ever be helpful in any way, just let us know. Thank you so much.